So here we are, <laughs> coming to the end of a, an extended period of mostly silent, intensive practice here. And soon to be taking yourself, uh, taking your practice out there, wherever there is for you. Which for most of you will entail a much longer period of intensive practice. With the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that many of us uh, come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and some feelings that are not so dissimilar to those that we came into the retreat with. For many people, there's a feeling of excitement and a feeling of readiness to go into an extended uh, period of intensive practice. And just before it's time to enter in, there may be the feeling that, well, I'm not quite finished yet out here. Just a few more days or maybe another week so that I can do everything that needs to be done. Uh, And then I'll be ready to go in, to go into retreat. And it seems that some of us have similar feelings Uh, similar thoughts when it's time to come out of retreat. Maybe an excitement and a readiness um, to go out into the larger world. Or maybe there are such thoughts as, well, just a little bit more time, a few more days, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a month to do what needs to be done here. And then I'll be finished. And then I'll be ready to come out. And then I'll be ready to go back out there. And sometimes on either end, the going in and the coming out, there may be some degree of reluctance or resistance. Maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known. Or maybe just essentially fear of change, fear of ending one way and beginning another. So you might check in with yourself. Check in and see if there might be some kinds or some degree of thoughts and feelings, some similar conditioned patterns within your mind and heart coming up now at the end of the retreat that maybe you have experienced in some way and to some degree as you were preparing to come here, or maybe soon after the retreat began. A number of years ago when I was living here at IMS as the resident teacher for staff, I was talking to a friend one evening um, who was, it was the evening just before he was to begin what I think was his 
third or fourth three-month retreat. And I asked him how he was feeling. And I think that if I had asked him the same uh, question at the end of the retreat, the answer could very well have been quite similar. He said, oh, I'm feeling the obligatory fear. (laughs) But of course, we may not feel um, any anxiety in either direction, entering into or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that we might feel a very clean, clear, open readiness and a happiness without any particular expectations at all, without any worries about moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase, the next form that life will take, whatever that might be. At a retreat that I taught uh, quite a number of years ago now, one person described coming out of retreat as feeling like she was descending, kind of like a plane descending, landing, feeling the force of gravity, as she explained it, coming back to Earth. So that might be something that you are experiencing or something of that nature. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swicart regarding uh, his experience in outer space. And I'd like to share that with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes. Because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there. And there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know that the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for human, for the humans, for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you, and you somehow represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there, and that's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. 
and it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And of course, it is a change. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life and into the larger world. One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, life moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our uh, days of practice of how quickly things change within our body, within our mind. How quickly things change all around us, even in the slow pace of retreat life. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice into practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world, the day-to-dayness, the moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often very fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've had a bit of a taste of the impersonality of change, the impersonality of experience and change. And we've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration deepened through this retreat and the focusing power of the mind developed over these days of practice, we've had a taste that the experience of breath, or maybe particularly what we may have experienced in the mind, what we may have experienced in the body, we've had some glimpse that any of these experiences come together because of myriad, myriad causes and conditions. In truth, really an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then there's that experience, whatever it is. And then it changes, sometimes quite quickly or maybe just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, 
has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things, how we relate to the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or to not do. There's more clarity in the choices that we make, more connection and more clarity in our relationship to others, more clarity in what's appropriate and important, what's wholesome, what's truly respectful, what's really truly kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down, a life of much more simplicity probably than most of you have outside of retreat. So this is certainly a change from here to out there. Life in retreat offers very little outside distraction, even though you've probably been distracted a thousand times over these last few days. We sit, we walk, we eat, we sleep, we speak a little bit every few days. And within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention, to mindfully pay attention to the breath at the touching point and to notice what occurs in the body, what occurs in the mind. And to not get caught, to not be seduced into these happenings. Through these days of practice, you've come to see and to know more and more clearly when the mind, when the heart's connecting to the experience of breath or if it's disconnected, or distracted, separated from experience. With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer and closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, what brings calm, what brings joy, tranquility, what brings a sense of well-being, and what doesn't. And we're learning to respect, to respect and care about all of these cycles within our mind and body. This seeing and knowing is a great support in a great protection as we reconnect with a larger world. And we're all so similar. I've said this in groups a few times. We're all so similar. No matter who we are, no matter where we live, no matter our culture, our age, our color, We're all so similar. We're really variations on themes. And we're all totally interconnected 
totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, how it affects our actions. Seeing into our own mind, seeing into our own heart, affects and informs the motivation behind the words, the motivation behind the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha in relationship to this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. The habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice, maybe beginning our day each day, chanting them to ourselves, silently to ourselves. It can be a very powerful aspect of encouraging and engendering the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. There's a a particular rendition, uh, so to say, of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza from the Green Gulch Zen community. And I'd like to share uh, this particular rendition of the refuges and the precepts with her, because I think it's particularly relevant to uh, daily life practice in a larger world. And I think as I read it, you'll understand why it's self-explanatory. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life 
selfishly, knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the three treasures being the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as I'm sure for some of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been um, inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in a way that serves, uh, a way that supports the process of the purification of the heart, which is very intimately related to the process of awakening. And it's been interesting to see this happening over time, sometimes through a very conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction or particular harmful habits. And as our practice deepens, there's more and more often Uh, a letting go, a simplification, if you will, uh, that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and quite naturally relinquish the habits, the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And it's very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So just to share a a very mundane personal example of this. There was a, a time when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio every time. And at some point I began to notice that it was a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all of the time. So I'd get in the car and begin driving somewhere, and lo and behold, my hand would automatically come up and begin to move towards the radio knob. The force of habit is very strong. So mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down again. And at some point, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then at that point, there was a choice available, to or not to. Very mundane, but there's many things like that, of that level of life that we can learn to change and not live in distraction all of the time, or most of the time. So looking at another change, In this uh, simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days for you, some big events for you. 
an especially uh, big day or big event for us in retreat might be something as ordinary and everyday uh, 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 occurrence is meal t- as mealtime. For me, there were times um, over the years of intensive retreat practice when lunchtime was such a, a, a big deal, was so important, such an important aspect of my day that at times I found myself thinking about it before I went to sleep at night, and then sometimes it would be one of the first things that popped into my mind when I woke up in the morning. That never happened to anybody here, probably. Um, and, uh, how about the big event of a, a group practice interview? Or for some of you, an individual practice meeting with Pat or myself. Big events in this quiet place, this quiet space of retreat life. I'd like to share a poem with you by wandering Japanese poet Nanao Sakaki, who actually uh, died um, just a year ago yesterday. And he calls this poem, Big Day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend uh, time up at the Lama Foundation, which is about 30 minutes north of where I live in Taos, New Mexico. And he'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay at Lama, the Lama Foundation, for a few days. They were always very, very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains, and, uh, and, and then he'd come back, and there he'd be back again at Lama. Sometimes he'd be gone for a few weeks or longer. A dear friend of mine who was the coordinator up at the Lama Foundation during those years told me uh, that one of uh, told me a story about one of the uh, times when Nanao had come into Lama for uh, a day or two from the mountains, and he asked her and another friend um, if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. And my friend was really delighted about this. Dinner with Nanao out at his camp was a a really something quite special. And it was something that had never been offered before. So on the appointed day and at the appointed time, my friend and the other invitee uh, found their way out to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions out into the mountains. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there wasn't any food ready, or, and there was no food in view. And he had told them not to bring anything. He said that uh, it wouldn't be necessary for them to bring anything, that there was plenty of food, he'd said. Well, my friend said they thought that maybe they'd made a mistake, that this was the wrong day. But Nanao was really delighted and greeted them very warmly and heartily and said, well, great, you're here, now let's go out and find dinner. And so my friend said that they walked and picked and dug uh, various wild foods. They came back to camp 
and built a fire and cooked what needed to be cooked. And they, she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. And she said they finally understood uh, how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or weeks at a time with almost nothing and then come back strong and healthy and very happy. Now, we may not simplify our lives to that degree, or maybe once in a while we do. There's something to be learned there. Once someone in an interview uh, spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste, she said. So we taste it, this really good taste. And we take it with us. And it wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And of course, life outside of retreat can be certainly quite complex at times. Our family life, our work life. And yet there are really always ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do it little by little by little as our practice deepens both inside in retreat and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do, in the ways that we spend time with friends and partners, family. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, many, many aspects of our life. We really, truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are some quite uh, complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with in our life, even amidst the possibility of simplifying. The taste of simplicity has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend or spend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat life, we learn, we see, we, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And you've tasted this probably many times during these last days. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of some old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of doing things, of being, we find ourselves connecting with a clearer focus and more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance 
within ourselves, within our life as a whole, we begin to feel more balanced. And so we find we have more energy available, more time available for our life to more and more directly and more and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat. And as we reconnect to a larger world, simplicity really being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most essential and important question. And of course, the essential ground uh, of this is that we develop, that we integrate a focused attention and a mindful awareness into all of the dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout the day when we can just simply bring our attention to the sensations of breath at the touching point. In almost any circumstance, in almost any activity, we can find many moments throughout the day when we can do this maybe just for a breath or two, or three, or maybe ten. So from this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys, the irritations, the annoyances, the delights, the frustrations, the satisfactions, the likes, the dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat, because all that came up here too, and in life outside of retreat, mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat uh, that I taught in Israel a number of years ago and who had, uh, long before I met her, uh, lived in a spiritual community in France uh, that was uh, guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. She told me a story uh, from when she lived in this community that's really a wonderful mirror of a particular and 
uh, difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France, there was an old man who was a very irascible fellow. He was messy, very messy, she said, and argumentative. And he, she said he wouldn't cooperate. He wouldn't help with things. He basically didn't get along with anybody, uh, and nobody basically got along with him. She said that no one in the community really liked him, and he himself didn't seem to um, like very many people in the community either. She said that he tried for a long time to stay in this community, but that it was, as you can imagine, very difficult for him, as well as very difficult for the other people in the community. And it was so difficult for him that he finally left. He just couldn't bear it anymore. And he went and he took himself to Paris. Well, Gurdjieff followed him uh, to Paris, and he tried to convince this man uh, to return to the community. But the man said he just couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. It was what, much too hard to be there, he said. So, so uh, uh, Gurdjieff finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, <laughs> which the man couldn't refuse. He was a very poor man. And so he did return. And when he returned, everyone in the community was really aghast, upset, shocked. And they were even more shocked uh, when they found out that he was being paid to be there because they themselves had to pay to be part of this community. And they complained a lot. And so Gurdjieff called a meeting. And this woman said that he listened to everybody's complaints, and then he just laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness, and the heart of unconditional compassion. So that's why you pay me, and I pay him. The conditions of our life, of our life, the people in our life, are all part of our practice. They're really yeast for our bread. They're yeast for the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind, yeast for our liberation, yeast for our awakening. There's one teaching amongst the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha offered. It's said that he offered 84,000 teachings over the 45 years of his teaching life. And there's one of these teachings where the Buddha uses a metaphor of a mother who has four sons. For the, he uses this metaphor for the development and the flowering of what are called the four divine abidings. The four divine abidings are metta, or unconditional loving-kindness, or unconditional acceptance, karuna, unconditional compassion, mudita, the empathetic or sympathetic joy for another's success, or beauty, or happiness, and upekka, 
the equanimity, the balance of heart, the balance of mind. So those are the four divine abidings. And in this example that the Buddha gives, each of the sons, because of their uh, particular age and personality and uh, particular uh, karmic um, manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but uh, they've managed to be some of my uh, strongest teachers in many, many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can sometimes be our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, how they are, what they need, what they give to us, what they show us. So an example, a personal example, my two oldest sons who are 45 years old and are identical twins. And they continue to show me, they continue to teach me a a relationship that's really quite rare. They're each other's best friends. And of course, although when they were little guys, they would fight, as children do. But over all of these years, these 45 years, they've never talked about each other um, or to each other, actually, in negative or judgmental ways. And they, they never, really never, um, put each other down. No matter what one or the other of them is feeling, no matter what one or the other of them has done or not done, no matter what is going on, what's happening in each other's lives, in one or the other's life. And they're also not each other's keeper. They've never, really never, been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think this is really quite a rare relationship, quite a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it, and I learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has potential towards the purification of our heart and the potential to reveal the truth to us. And in relationship to this, some words again from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seeks seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And I'd like to uh, share a poem with you. This is uh, a poem from the Turkish of Edib Kansever. I'm not sure I pronounced the name right, but and it's called Table. It's a translation by Richard Tillinghast. 
a man filled with gladness of li- with a man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table put flowers in a copper bowl there he put his eggs and milk on the table he put there the light that came in through the window sound of a bicycle sound of a spinning wheel the softness of bread and weather he put there on the table the man put things that happened in his mind what he wanted to do in life he put there he put that there those he loved those he didn't love the man put them on the table too 3 times 3 makes 9 the man put 9 on the table he was next to the window next to the sky he reached out and placed on the table endlessness so many days he had wanted to drink a beer he put on the table the pouring of that beer he placed there his sleep and his wakefulness his hunger and fullness he placed there now that's what i call a table it didn't complain at all about the load it wobbled once or twice then stood firm the man kept piling things on the key to the door the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves this noble sacred path along is first and foremost a focused concentrated attention that's grounded in mindfulness and it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of our mind the concentration of the mind that you've cultivated over these days a change from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect with a larger world and it's true that there's some change in the the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect with a larger world and although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness is not totally sustained outside of the retreat setting the concentration and the mindfulness that we experience in a retreat like this is a great support i can't emphasize it enough it's a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with a larger world there is a change but we don't lose it concentration and mindfulness are always available to us in any moment many years ago at the end of a two month retreat that i was sitting with Saida Upandita and two other Burmese monks I had a brief conversation with one of the monks at the very end of the retreat and I asked him if there was any advice that he <clears throat> might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life and this was his response he said you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy you need to sleep 
to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. That's all he said. Pretty good advice, I think. So in terms of integrating the practice of concentration and mindfulness more and more fully into your life, um, there are some particular ways that I and others have found to be really quite helpful. And one, uh, one very practical suggestion is that at the end of each hour of the day, take one or two moments to just stop Be still and connect with the breath at the touching point. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very direct, focused practice time. With each of these moments, in fact, having an effect on the moments that follow. And I think the only difficult thing about doing these very brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. (coughs) And I know people who put um, little notes to themselves, like around their house or at their workplace. Maybe a note on the bathroom mirror, so you see it, you know, pretty early in the first part of your day, that just says breathe or breath. Or maybe a little stand-up note uh, on your desk at work or your desk at home that says, still breathing. (laughs) There was a man here uh, at IMS when I was uh, the staff resident teacher who worked in the front office, and he had a little stand-up note on his desk, and it said, buttocks. (laughs) Which every time anybody came in and looked at it, it made them laugh. But he said it was to remind him to connect here with his buttocks and the cushion to make the connection, his body sitting and the contact points, which he said after a while he didn't notice the note anymore, so he had to make a new one, but it worked for a while. I think walking meditation in our daily life can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing uh, to connect and to strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Most of us walk at least a few miles just going from one place to another, from here to there, in a day, and certainly throughout a week. So we can make some of this walking a time of practice. And again, when I lived here for those four years as the staff teacher, (laughs) my living space and my workspace was upstairs in room 107, the same room I'm staying in during this retreat. But because I did so many practice interviews uh, on a daily basis and I had lots of meetings uh, to attend, I didn't have time during the day to do walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, which was fairly often, that would be my walking practice time. 
And I really was able to stick with this most days once I decided to do it. At one point, uh, a staff member came in uh, for a practice interview. They met with me at least weekly, if not more. Uh, and uh, he was obviously quite agitated when he came in. And uh, he, with quite a bit of difficulty, he, he told me that he was very upset because I was ignoring him. Uh, he said he felt abandoned by me, and he wondered if, if I was angry at him, because every time he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. <laughs> well, I assured him that I wasn't angry with him, I hadn't abandoned him, and I wasn't ignoring him, but that I was practicing as deeply as I possibly could going up and down the stairs. And of course, this completely changed his attitude, and he said, oh, what a great idea. People may not always understand uh, what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. But do it anyway. Use your life wisely. And it's really helpful to connect with others who practice as we experience in a retreat how important that is. We can certainly see the benefits, uh, as many people have mentioned, uh, in the retreat setting of that. If you're not connected at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or three people, once in a while, check and see if there's a, a, a group sitting, a sitting group uh, in your area. And if there's not, start one. It could just mean inviting one or two people over to sit with you, to sit and meditate with you uh, once a week or every other week. And so you can come together and sit first for however long you decide is uh, with the other person or other people, how long you'll sit, and then maybe read something. Read something out loud about practice. Maybe listen to a CD. You can take turns each week for, with however many people are there, who chooses the reading or who chooses what you'll be listening to in a CD. And then make a little time for some discussion, some Dhamma discussion about what you've listened to and maybe about your practice together, talking about your practice together. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, Ananda was one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, spoke about the importance of connecting with spiritual friends. And the little conversation went this way. Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, half of this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda by saying, do not say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, this companionship, this association with the good. So use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment, as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts of life. 
perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As you go out into the larger world, and even right now in the midst of the holiday season, if we're patient and determined, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy increases. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And here's another Nanao Sakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, Sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd like to uh, close the talk this evening with another poem by Nanao, kind of as a a tribute to him since it's uh, the year's anniversary of his death. A tribute to him and a tribute to your practice. He calls this poem, or called this poem, a love letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, Go see the southern coral reef in summer or the drifting winter ices in the Sea of Oaks. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced-out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle ten billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system mandala. Within a circle ten thousand light-years large, the galaxy full-blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light-years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry flowers. Now within a circle 10 billion light years large, all thoughts of time, space are burnt away. 
There again, you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.